Hello, I'm Sebastian Marshall, and this is the Ultra Working Podcast. So today we're going to be talking about the somatic markers hypothesis that uh, was advanced by the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio. And we're going to look at potentially if it's true and correct, and some version of it seems like it's at least partially true and correct to me, that what might be a couple practical applications of it, uh, which I think is going to be really cool, and this should be really interesting. But a caveat before beginning. Uh, so I've got, you know, at best a layman's understanding of the topic and not even that strong of one. And, and I would say that I'm a quite scientifically literate person, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, facts you can collect, you know, you can understand what E equals MC squared means and you can, you know, memorize what the speed of light is. But but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can look at research papers and books and evaluate if, if what they're saying is correct or not. Um, and things like experimental controls and inference and statistics and experiment design and things like that. I spent a lot of time trying to learn that stuff and I'm, I'm friends with, with a number of people that have done some uh, really first class uh, work in the sciences, um, have been published in top journals and we hang out and we talk about science. Um, but I'm, I'm not a professional scientist, uh, obviously in the, you know, in the mainstream academically rigorous sort of fashion. So you're getting a bit of a layman's understanding from somebody who I think I'm more or less scientifically literate. And I think I avoid a, a lot of the, uh, really silliest mistakes you'll see when, when, when people discuss science or over extrapolate it. But, uh, you know, you're, you're getting a layman's understanding. So just be aware of that. I might make uh, a little error uh, from time to time. I'm also going to move between some factual things and some speculations that I have. Um, and I'll try to mark those, those down. Um, it, it should be pretty obvious, but I'll, I'll try to mark those down. So, you know, keep the critical thinking engaged. Please check out the own research papers. And, hey, if I make a little mistake or something and you're very knowledgeable about the topic, by all means, uh, shoot an email, follow up. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're always wanting to get smarter. So with all of that said, let's begin. So the somatic markers hypothesis is, is, is really interesting. And, and I think the, the full interestingness of it might get lost by the fact that I think a lot of people just grant that it's true. Um, and it seems kind of true, but, but it was, it was a little bit of a big deal when it was first advanced, uh, by, uh, Damasio. And, um, he did that uh, primarily in a book or, or a book that I've, I've read some of called Descartes' Error. Um, and uh, here's how he described it in his book. Uh, the main subject of Descartes' Error is the relation between emotion and reason based on my study of neurological patients who had, birth, uh, had both defects of decision-making and a disorder of emotion, I advanced the hypothesis known as the somatic marker hypothesis that emotion was in the loop of reason and that emotion could assist in the reasoning process rather than necessarily disturb it, as was commonly assumed. And, you know, that's kind of interesting, and, and I think most people would just probably grant that something like that is true, right? That's like, okay, your emotions filter into your decision-making, and, and, and not just in a way where it disturbs it, your emotions might be, might be useful in making a correct um, decision about something. Okay, fair enough. And... Then Damasio has this really technical breakdown, and, and you know, if you fall asleep, just like wake up in 10 seconds or something, because we'll, we'll get into talking about practical stuff. So, but hey, I want to read this out because this is what he said. Um, so this is also from uh, from his book. He said this idea, somatic markers hypothesis, uh, is anchored in the following statements: one, the human brain and the rest of the body 
constitute an indissociable organism integrated by means of mutually interactive biochemical and neuroregulatory circuits, including endocrine, immune, and autonomic neural components. Two, the organism interacts with the environment as an ensemble. The interaction is neither of the body alone nor of the brain alone. Three, the physiological operating that we call mind are derived from, and the physio physiological operations that we call mind are derived from the structural and functional ensemble rather than from the brain alone. Mental phenomenon can be fully understood only in the context of an organism's interacting in an environment. That the environment is in part a product of the organism's activity itself merely underscores the complexity of interactions we must take into account. Okay, what the heck is he saying? That's really technical. Please wake up if you fell asleep. Um, hopefully you weren't driving, um, in which case you've probably got bigger problems on your hands than trying to understand the somatic markers hypothesis. So, all right, one, the human brain, the rest of the body constitute an indissociable organism integrated by means of mutually interactive biochemical and neural regulatory circuits, endocrine immune, autonomic neural components. Um, so he's saying there, and this view has gone back and forth a few times, and it, it, I, I don't know enough about the full history um, of the field to know if what Damasio is, is saying is true, but, but he says this is kind of a neglected thing for a while, that you know people were thinking that the brain um, was maybe a little more independent than the body, as opposed to uh, Damasio is, is saying that, you know, you can't look at brain activity without looking at body activity and vice versa. There's, uh, like, you can't, it's useless, it won't work, basically. Uh, my words, not his. Two, the organism interacts with the environment as an ensemble. It's neither the brain or the body alone. Okay, it's fairly straightforward. But then three, the physiological operations that we call mind are derived from the structural and functional ensemble. Okay, structural and functional ensemble means, like, what's going on, the, the structure of it, including, you know, nerves and organs and the different parts of the body and the brain and, and functional, like the stuff that you're doing going around. Ensemble just means all of it together rather than from the brain alone. All right, so it's like your, your brain and your body or the rest of the body are working together. Mental phenomenon cannot be fully understood only in the context of an organism, uh, can be only fully understood in the context of an organism interacting in an environment, right? So, you know, like if somebody is in a, uh, a, a smoky pool hall, having a glass of whiskey, um, th their cognition there is going to be different than if they're in a, a, you know, in a university setting, um, studying, studying something intently. I mean, that's fairly straightforward, right? But even if they're deriving the same, you know, like trying to sort through the same mental conclusions, they're going to be having probably slightly different ideas and different patterns of ideas, right? That's a kind of a layman's way of putting it, and it makes sense, right? And then, but then this line here is a killer line that I think is really interesting. That the environment is in part a product of the organism's activity itself merely underscores the complexity of interactions we must take into account. Yeah, so you're in an, you're in an environment all the time, right? Um, but you're also affecting the environment, and the environment's affecting you, and all of that's affecting your thinking, and your thinking is affecting what you're doing, which is affecting your environment. So it's like a very complex set of feedback loops, right? Okay. Um, I, I wanted to try to put that on some, some technical ground and not, not try to sum up Damasio um, too much without letting him get his own words in. But, you know, 
where this gets really interesting, where this gets really interesting, and, and we'll do a little bit of uh, you know a little bit of theory, and then we'll talk about some practical speculations that, that might be useful and, and profitable. I've I've been really geeking out on this um, since I since I heard about this maybe six months ago. It's it's really interesting. Um, so probably among the most interesting things here um, that we can jump right into is the Iowa gambling experiment, and. Uh, Again, layman oversimplifying kind of explanation. Uh, there's like different decks, kind of like of cards, and a participant would pull one. It might be like get a dollar, lose a dollar, get five dollars, lose five dollars. And some are bad decks that net lose you money, and some are good decks that net win you money. So you have like four decks of cards in front of you. You pull, you pull cards from them. You make money or you lose money. And um, what gets really, really interesting, what gets really, really interesting about this thing is um, they found that before people had formed like a mental conscious impression that, okay, this deck I think has more winners than losers or, or whatever, um, that, that they, they actually started to have some very, very small, they weren't even aware of it, physiological reactions to that, right? So, so here's a quote. Concurrent measurement of galvanic skin response shows that healthy participants show a quote-unquote stress reaction to hovering over the bad decks after only 10 trials long before conscious sensation that the decks are bad, right? So, I mean, I think we've all had an experience where we're like, you know, we walk into a room and we're like, whoa, it's tense here, right? Or you're walking through a city and you're like, whoa, it might be a little bit dangerous where I'm at. Um, and, you know, you kind of just kind of like snap into reality. You might have been you know, daydreaming or thinking about something or whatever. And then just all of a sudden you just get like a sensation. Hey, I, be, I should be paying attention. Something's going on here. And I think we've all had that experience. Um, and if you buy the Iowa gambling task, and I haven't gone through all the experimental controls and the setup and the reproducibility of it and stuff like that. It looks good to me on a quick look. I'm, I'm taking it at face value because it, it happened quite a while ago. And, um, you know, I mean, we do have a, a bit of a replication crisis in, in some of the sciences and the decision-making things. Uh, this one looks good. They're using physical instruments. You know, I, I didn't go through all the controls, so but it looks good to me on a quick look. Um, if this one later shows to not replicate somebody, give me a note and we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, look, we'll look into it and, and we'll correct the record on it. But it looks correct to me. But that's fascinating, isn't it? That before you know, hey, this is a bad thing. I shouldn't flip this card over. You're just like, mm, you know, right? But you don't even really even know that you're like, er, you just, you, you know, you're, you're, you're getting more physically tense. Now, it's worth touching on galvanic skin response quickly, because I think this is just infinitely fascinating. So the Wikipedia uh, for it that will redirect you to is electrodermal activity. Dermal is skin, electro is electrical, skin electrical activity is, is what that means. And I think this is so fascinating. I, I just talk about this for an hour. It's so interesting. In 1849, uh, Du Bois-Raymond in Germany first observed that human skin was electrically active. He immersed the limbs of his subjects in zinc sulfate solution and found that electric current flowed between a limb when, with muscles contracted and one that was relaxed. Okay, so when you're flexing, right, when you're flexing, you have a different level of electrical activity um, in your skin than when you're not. That's fascinating, 1849, whoa, so cool, right? Well, that's actually also happening 
you know, flexing is a particularly strong version of it, but that's also happening based on a lot of other things. Um, you know, uh, uh, various kind of reactions in your body, you know, you get nervous, you get uh, scared, you get relaxed, your galvanic skin response, your electrodermal, your electrodermal activity will change. So during the IO gambling test, they found that people are having a stress reaction to a bad thing, but they're not aware of it yet. And then that feeling grows and eventually it triggers into a, a, a thought and then it's probably assisting in the like, hey, this deck is bad. It's kind of interesting, right? And, you know, if you ever get a, a bad feeling when you meet somebody, you know, this might be that your, your brain is doing like some deep pattern matching. Like there's nothing consciously wrong, but just like little tiny things seem off. Um, when people talk about a gut reaction to things, this is, this is often talked about um, in the context of this. So there's a bunch of things that can be measured like this that, that seem to mean that the body will have different positive or negative physiological responses to stuff that you're maybe consciously aware of and sometimes not even fully consciously aware of, right? So there's also muscle tone, different from the electrical, uh, electrical response, about just how, how tightly your muscles are contracted. It's always happening a little bit, right? You know, you don't, even if you're fully relaxed, you don't become a complete you know, ball of jelly, right? And, uh, you know, you can actually feel tenser in your muscles or not as you interact with different phenomenon. And uh, what Damasio is saying is this stuff filters back in your decision-making and, um, and, and shapes your decision-making and is kind of an essential part of it. You know, as he said, uh, as he said, the uh, human brain and rest of the body constitute an indissociable organism right? You can't just look at the brain, right? Because the brain is picking up cues from, you know, the electrical activity on your skin, the tension level in your muscles, and a variety of other things like that. And it's a very complex set of feedback loops um, between those. So, okay, this is really, really interesting. So, what do we do with this? I mean, aside from the fact that it's just fascinating and it's interesting. Well, two things. So, I watched, uh, again, about maybe, I don't know, seven, eight months ago, maybe. I watched a bunch of, this is before I came across the somatic markers hypothesis. I watched a bunch of documentaries on special forces selection processes. I just found a collection of them, and I just, you know, I went through like 10 hours of them at 2x speed or something like that. So this is how, you know, people try out for and get into the U.S. Army Rangers, the U.S. Navy SEAL teams, um, I watched a, a couple on, on foreign militaries, and they're all they're all uh, have some commonalities. Um, you know, the the really elite military units they do really dangerous stuff, like you know hostage rescues and uh, you know commando missions, and they're, they're, it's like really dangerous, difficult work that you have to remain really composed under you know sometimes very <laughs> dangerous, scary, bad situations. You might be totally exhausted. You need to keep going. You need to not break down under stress and pressure. So what they do. Uh, in, in, in the selection processes for the elite military units is they put people under um, really difficult physiological and, and psychological circumstances and the people have to keep functioning well and, and not quit and not and not freak out. Um, and it's really difficult. So I was watching a bunch of these documentaries and I, I don't know, maybe I was like four documentaries in. I didn't notice this the first one. So I'm, I'm like a few hours in. I started noticing something, right? So there would be cameras um, that would show the entire scene of a, of a whole uh, class of, you know, the U.S. Army Rangers or, or, you know, similar 
similar similar type of uh, you know military cohort that people are trying to get through the class. And then you know they'd be doing push-ups, doing jumping jacks. They'd be you know uh, going on a, a fast march or a run. And sometimes they would have a you know a heavy backpack on, and they'd have to carry a rifle while doing it. Sometimes without you know they'd be doing these different activities. And I started noticing, and then I started clicking around um, in some of these documentaries to, to confirm it, that some of the people in the cohort seemed to have um, a few effects in their posture, in their movement, and their facial expression where they looked under a little bit of distress really quite early. Um, really quite early when the actual amount of uh, challenge wouldn't, wouldn't have really caught up with them yet. You know, if you're, if you're 20 minutes into doing some, some push-ups and some jumping jacks, to even qualify to to uh, you know to attempt to go through selection for for the Army Rangers, this is you know this is these are very very fit people. Um, you know, physiologically, 20, 20 minutes in, you know, forty minutes in is not you, you know okay. It's like whatever you're doing jumping jacks, you're doing push ups and stuff. It's a little difficult, but these are people that are really really fit. But you see, as some people do it, they just look under a little bit more distress, and you could see it in their posture. Um, you know, where they're, uh, you know, maybe a little tiny bit more slouching. You could see it in the movement where it's a little bit less like fluid and crisp. And, and most notably, and this is where I first noticed, you can see in the facial expression where there's like some grimacing or some gritting of the teeth or whatever. And then I started paying attention to this to, to see if it's, you know, maybe true. Um, I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm thinking the people that, that look like that early are not going to make it through. Now, it's a documentary, right? So the documentary filmmakers get a lot of footage and they want to show dramatic scenes, right? So if there's somebody just having a really bad time on a march and they just look totally miserable, it's like, oh, wow, that's a really interesting scene. And they, you know, they cut it to, to put that in. So you got to be aware of that. What I was really interested in was looking at just like the pan of the whole class. And you just like look at somebody in the second row, uh, you know, or the third row. It's not like the subject of it. Somebody's just in the background kind of of the scene and then is that person around later and it's obviously they're not giving you the full you know you're not getting the, the name and, and rank uh, you know of everybody that goes through and whether they make it or not right so it's kind of a I don't know quasi scientific endeavor to look at this but but it really seemed to to match up to me that the people that had um, especially the grimacing facial expressions just did not make it through at a very high rate and it's like okay which way does the causality run here, right? The, the, the default explanation here, right? The default explanation here would be like, well, those people are having a bad time. That's a sign that they're having a bad time, right? And then they didn't make it because they were having a bad time, right? So, okay, right? Like that's, the, that's probably the simple explanation. The simple explanation would be like, if you're really suffering at something such that you, you know, are like really having a very bad time, you're both likely to look miserable and to quit. So because you're doing really, like having a really bad time, that both generates a look that you're having a really bad time and makes you less likely to make it through. But what if it's at least partially the other way around? I'm speculating here, now we're speculating, right? Now we're speculating, right? So what if you're grimacing, locking up, being a little bit tense, um, or showing signs of fatigue or distress, what if that's filtering back into your thinking all the time? And that's really interesting, isn't it? So I started paying attention to this a little bit. I do one-on-one -on -one yoga classes at least twice a week. And uh, there's two instructors that I've worked with, both of whom are great. 
Um, one of whom would have made an excellent serial killer if she wasn't an excellent yoga instructor. She just kicks the hell out of me every single time we do yoga. Like there's different types of yoga instructors and some of them are like very soothing and, 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 and very like calm and, 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 and you know, very, uh, you know, into recovery and, and, you know, and I like that. And that's one of the yoga instructors I work with like that. The other one seems to want to work me out about it, about as hard as I can. Most of the times we, we do yoga. It's, it's not the soothing, like I got to not quit when I'm doing it every time. It's, it's rough. It's, it's intense, right? But she's also always giving me cues. Drop your shoulders. Drop your shoulders. She says it all the time. Drop your shoulders. So, you know, when you get tense and when you do yoga, a lot of times your shoulders will rise up. I mean, you can, even as you listen to this, you could tense your shoulders up. You know, you pull your shoulders up towards your ears and, 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 and you know, kind of flex a little bit. You'll feel you feel, you feel way more tense. Well, um, you might be doing something that's entirely lower body, right? You might be in a pretty intense lunge. Um, uh, one, uh, one thing that we commonly, we commonly do is, a, is a, a, a yoga pose called King Arthur, where like one of your knees is on the ground against a wall. And it's like, and then the, you know, the foot and the, the, the shin are both against the wall and the other one's like kind of forward in like a, kind of like a, you know, like a kneeling, you know, you kind of look like King Arthur except your legs against the wall. And that's a really intense stretch um, in your hips um, and, uh, you know, kind of around the knees um, and the legs. But your upper body's not really that active in it. Nevertheless, what I'll naturally do is I'll get tense in my shoulders. And she says, hey, she, so this is what the beauty of one-on-one -on -one yoga is that you can get direct feedback from your instructor. She says, hey, drop your shoulders. Sebastian, drop your shoulders. And then you do, and then I feel more calm and it feels less intense. So what I started thinking about is, okay, what are the visible signs of being exhausted or in distress, especially when I do yoga? This is a great opportunity for me to get a little window into this practice here. And I have an instructor there, so she's running the whole program. I don't need to do a lot of cognition around, okay, now I'm gonna do this, now I'm gonna do that, this is the next thing, this is the next thing. She, she, she kind of picks the sets for me of what we're gonna work on. So it's great, I could just focus on doing the yoga, but I can also think a little bit about how I'm approaching this, how I'm controlling my breathing, how I'm using my body and, and whatever else. And uh, yeah, there's a couple of yoga poses that are, are, are really quite intense. And um, they'll tend to generate in me um, a look of uh, discomfort uh, or displeasure or distress. And then sometimes, you know, we're doing the like, get up, get down, get up, get up, down. Like, you know, just like, uh, sometimes it's a little bit explosive and a lot of like rotating through things and it's exhausting when, when that happens. And like, what are the signs of exhaustion? Well, it's like less crisp movements, kind of more sloppiness. Um, again, that might be, uh, you know, you might have the tension in your shoulders or you might have like a artificial slackness, you know, you might be a little bit like, blah, 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 right. And I started thinking, okay, again, the simple Occam's razor thing here that we, that I'm now speculating that the opposite might be partially true would be like, okay, you're getting exhausted. Therefore you're showing that you're exhausted, right? You get exhausted. You look exhausted, right? Because you are getting exhausted. You are looking exhausted. But what if it's the other way around? What if because you're looking exhausted, you're getting exhausted? I don't think this is entirely true, obviously, right? But I think this squares with uh, Damasio's somatic markers hypothesis, right? 
it stands to reason. I'm extending and speculating here, and this is quite speculative, right? Maybe there's been some work on it that I haven't discovered. I did search around a little bit, but not exhaustively into the scientific literature, right? What if displaying signs of exhaustion or distress then filters back into your thinking and then you feel more psychologically fatigued or distressed and that changes your patterns of thoughts and you could see how that would spiral. And you know, if you've ever seen anybody like freak themselves out when they didn't really need to be, like uh, you could see kind of a feedback loop happening. Like, I don't know, maybe there's like some loud noise that startles them. They get startled and they're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Right, so they get in like a more kind of frantic pattern and then that frantic pattern can generate thoughts along those lines. Maybe they get a little more frantic and you could kind of see a feedback loop building up there that perhaps if you interrupted that on a bodily level, right, if you consciously release some of the tension in your muscles, you changed your facial expression from in distress to either neutral or to one that would indicate enjoyment, smiling, um, then, you know, perhaps you're, you, you would detect, I don't know what the exact right word is here, detect less exhaustion if you're displaying less exhaustion, which might make you feel less exhausted. Maybe your thoughts, maybe different thoughts would occur to you if you're smiling versus grimacing, right? Because most of the military selection processes for the, for the elite units, um, like the SEAL teams and the Rangers, um, you, you can get disqualified if you're, if you're doing something dangerous or wrong or, or, or if you have a medical reason to get disqualified. But, but most of them, most people that leave the programs quit. Well, at some point, the person must have had the idea to quit, right? I mean, I suppose you could theoretically completely involuntarily just walk over and, and, and ring the bell or say, I want to withdraw or whatever. But I don't think so. I think, you're like, man, maybe I can't do this. Maybe I should quit. Is that thought less likely to occur if you're, you know, transitioning your, your, your physiological, your body from, hey, I'm moving like I'm exhausted. Why don't I move like I'm having a good time? Hey, I'm moving like I'm not enjoying this or my facial expression looks like I'm not enjoying this. I'm grimacing. Why don't I move that to neutral or to smiling? And again, yoga has been wonderful for this for me because I, I didn't even know about the shoulders thing, but now I notice it all the time going about my daily life. Sometimes I have a hard problem um, that I'm working out. I got a paper notebook open in front of me. I'm trying to work something out. And sometimes I feel not the really strong tension in my shoulders, but a little bit. And then I just like let that go. You know, maybe you roll your shoulders out and then drop them um, and kind of relax. And I don't know, my thinking gets a little more controlled and, and a little more on point, I think, right? There's always a problem with these kind of, quasi-scientific n equals one experiments n equals one means it's just me doing it which is it's very hard to collect uh, you know objective data on yourself and, and run through those and besides I got a I got a day job I'm not I'm not just a researcher right um, so I don't know maybe it's not true but but it seems to be true um, and it seems to square with the somatic markers hypothesis if you're uh, starting to get shaped by your environment including uh, what's happening in your body these, and some of these things most people aren't aware of like a galvanic skin response or the you know um, Intensity of a, a passive partial contraction of a muscle um, That correcting those adjusting those Might lead to having different thoughts and if it really is a feedback loop, which it might well be that might give you um, 
less exhaustion, less distress, um, and let you get through things with, with less hardship, more effectiveness, but also just like less hardship, even if you were going to get through it anyways. So that's something that I'm thinking about lately. And I think this is cool. Um, so give it some thought. Um, if you're interested, uh, the scientist's name is Antonio Damasio. Um, so he's written some books. He's written some papers. You can Google them. We also talked about the Iowa gambling task. You can look into that. Um, if you Google special forces selection documentaries, I'm sure you'll find a bunch of them. Um, and then maybe try out some yoga. Yoga is no joke, as I've said many, many times. Yoga is not a joke. Some people think it's uh, just this chill out thing. Uh, it can be. It really depends on the instructor. But, uh, but yoga, yoga can be pretty intense. So that, that's been a wonderful place for me to practice these. So give it some thought. Maybe give it some research if this has piqued your interest. We always like hearing from listeners. Feel free to shoot a note in if this was interesting to you or if you try it out or see any new papers on this if you get intrigued and, and maybe give it a try. Um, I think this, this probably has a, a highly personal uh, component to it in terms of you know what uh, techniques uh, you would use to both detect how you're doing in your body and to make little adjustments. As I've said, yoga has been really great for me um, in this regard, but it might be something else for you. But, uh, but give it some thought and, and maybe play around with it because I'm seeing not world-shaping gains. This isn't like a 10x, you're Superman all of a sudden, but, but I'm seeing substantial, I don't know, I would, say, I would say that when I navigate this around difficult situations, I think it's like at least a 20 to 40% edge, which is huge from just one little thing about like, okay, drop my shoulders, you know, soften my facial expression, um, and otherwise just, just, just take the intensity or display of intensity of any exhaustion or distress down, move that to either neutrality or a slight enjoyment of it, and then I perform better, but I also perform um, in a way where I feel more well-being and more flourishing. So this, this seems harmonious and uh, potentially profitable to both investigate and try out. Okay, thank you for listening to the Ultra Working Podcast. I'm Sebastian Marshall, and uh, good luck and Godspeed on uh, diving into those somatic markers.